Good morning. You know, this is, um, I've done a number of retreats with college students, and uh, Sunday morning, the, the difference is the most striking between them and you, because college students, I've learned, are nocturnal beings. Um, and so on a retreat, it's not uncommon that the earliest they will get to bed is about three, and some of them will stay up all night. So they come to Sunday morning eager but uh, bleary-eyed and kind of like yeah, falling asleep. Um, I wanted to use uh, our final conference to speak about um, Blessed Virgin Mary, especially in light of the theme of greatness that we've been uh, talking about over the weekend. Um, I'd like to begin with um, a brief reading from uh, Mark uh, chapter 10. Mark says, And people were bringing children to him, that's Jesus, that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he became indignant and said to them, the disciples, Let the children come to me. Do not prevent them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Um, you know, in the Gospels, we have many passages where the Gospel writers recount Jesus' teaching. Sometimes it's in a brief uh, part, sometimes it's more extended. Like uh, you think of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew has three whole chapters devoted to Jesus' teaching. But in this gospel, uh, with its account of people bringing children to Jesus um, to try to have him bless them and the, and the disciples trying to prevent them, it's kind of neat in that we get a glimpse of what everyday life was like for Jesus. Um, meaning he's just walking along with his disciples and these parents are trying to bring their children to get this prophet, this man of God from Nazareth, to, to bless them. And so spontaneously, on the spur of the moment, we have Jesus teaching, a teaching that will endure for generations, just, just on the spur of the moment. Let the children come to me, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Um, why does the kingdom of heaven belong to such as children? Um, already in some of the prior conferences, we talked about a couple of the reasons. On Friday night, I um, suggested that they embody a freedom to say what they think and feel, and I recommended seeing it as an attitude of openness and honesty in prayer. Um, yesterday at one of the conferences, uh, we looked at children in terms of how they don't focus on titles and accomplishments, but on love as of central importance in their life. Um, this morning, I'd like to look at them from the perspective that children embody a disposition which is um, tremendous when it's found in the disciple of the Lord. And that is that children have a certain openness and acceptance of life um, as it presents itself. I mean, by that I mean that the young simply receive life as it comes to them. The realities of life have not yet, to, to put it in the best light, seasoned them, or in a more cynical way, life has not yet jaded them. Um, they simply trust what they are told. They simply believe it and move with it. Now, as we become more mature, 
we become more discriminating about the things we're told. We tend to be more cautious and hesitant to believe everything that people say to us. And I'm not at all saying that's a bad thing. Um, it's a necessary trait. In fact, part of children's trust is their naivete. And so they need somebody to look out for them and protect them and teach them about life. Um, so I'm not at all saying that being discriminating is bad. It's good. What I am saying is that that attitude towards life of simply accepting it as it comes is a great disposition for a disciple in their relating with God. And Mary is the model for this. Um, in looking at her, I want to um, focus on the first of the joyful mysteries of the Rosary, the Annunciation. It's not that we couldn't look at other ones, but, but just in terms of um, our time. Um, and even that, I just want to highlight a couple aspects of the account. Also, I, I guess I'm approaching this talk more as kind of a reflection on Mary as a... Um, kind of as a way of concluding our conferences, but also as a way of leading into the rosary, which I know you'll be doing uh, right after this conference. So it's kind of a uh, setting the stage for, for praying the rosary. You may be uh, familiar with the account of the Annunciation, but just to make it fresh, I'll read a part of it. It's from Luke chapter one. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. And then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. But Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? And the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Okay, so the angel comes to her and announces to Mary that God wants to do something impossible. That is, that you, Mary, a virgin, are going to conceive and bear a son. Um, I think as uh, Christians, and imagine most of us have been raised, if not all of us have been raised throughout our whole life in Christianity, we've become accustomed to the idea of uh, the Son of God being born of a virgin. And so I think it no longer makes the impact on us that it really should. Um, and so I think occasionally it's helpful to get the viewpoint um, of someone outside our faith circle to put what we're talking about in its true perspective. Um, imagine you know the name Larry King. Okay, I thought so. Um, Well-known radio and television interviewer who I think just retired in the past year, um, but after hosting a nightly TV show for about 25 years, um, 
Okay, so you know. Uh, you may not know that he was raised Jewish and that he considers himself an agnostic. Well, um, one time the shoe was on the other foot and Larry King was being interviewed. And the interviewer asked him if he could interview any figure from history, who would it be? And he said he would interview Jesus of Nazareth. And the interviewer said to him, well, what would you ask Jesus? And he said, I would ask him if he were really born of a virgin. Because if he were, that would change everything. Meaning, it's impossible. And therefore, if it were true, his claims about being divine would be true. So I, I think it just helps occasionally to kind of, you know, re-impact us on, on what, what's really going on here. That the angel Gabriel comes to Mary of Nazareth and announces that God wants to do something impossible. And Mary believes. She believes the impossible, not because she's naive as a child, but because she's a daughter of God who believes that God can do what he says. Um, most scripture scholars agree that at the time of the Annunciation, Mary was probably about 14 or 15 years old. Uh, in any event, she's young. Um, and you know, there's a certain, I've been working with college students for uh, over 10 years now, there's a certain natural hope in the young. Um, they believe that things can change um, and that they can change the world. Um, and in my interactions with young people, I find that um, that attribute of theirs a very um, endearing quality. Um, and I think God does too. Um, in uh, the 1600s, there was discovered in Rome a Christian sarcophagus that dates from about 360 AD. Um, and a stone sarcophagus, and there's a relief on, on the side of it, different pictures. And on one side, it pictures Jesus enthroned in heaven with the pagan god Uranus um, holding up his footstool, indicating his you know, dominion over or everything, superiority over these pagan gods. On either side of Christ are pictured Peter and Paul. Um, and I think, well, what's so remarkable about that? And in a certain way, nothing except for the face of Christ. Um, he is portrayed as clean-shaven, which is very different than we normally think of, and he has the face of a very young man. Um, that's because for the Christians, the early Christians, youth was a symbol of divinity. In other words, their, their reasoning on it was based on the sense that God never grows old, that uh, he never flags in energy, his strength never fails. Life in him is perpetually new and fresh. Um, you're, uh, I imagine you're familiar with Michelangelo's Pieta. Mary seated there holding the lifeless body of her son taken down from the cross. Um, if Mary were 14 or 15 when Jesus was conceived and he died when he was 33, that would make her in her late 40s or early 50s at the time of his crucifixion. Well, Michelangelo has Mary's face as that of a young woman, like someone in their teens. Um, it's thought that he did this for one or maybe both of two reasons. The first, because her yes to the angel at the Annunciation 
um, expressed the fundamental disposition of her entire life. And so uh, even though she aged naturally, can, she continued to have this attitude towards the Lord as what it was when Gabriel visited her. Let me do whatever it is you ask. And so he's trying to convey that same disposition that was there when she was 14 is still here now at the foot of the cross. It's also theorized that Michelangelo depicted Mary's countenance as youthful because she was so infused with the life of God that she reflected the youthfulness of divinity, even though she appears, uh, even though she's now elderly, she still appears young because she reflects the youthfulness of God. I think uh, this, this whole kind of reflection on God and youthfulness and Mary um, expresses well that what's in the natural realm oftentimes shares similarities with the spiritual life. But there are differences in this sense. In the natural order, youthfulness passes with the advancing of age. Um, naturally speaking, an 80-year-old is no longer young. But that's not necessarily true in the life of a Christian. Youth is a natural symbol of hope because so much of the young's life lies before them. Their past is very short, their future is very long. But for the Christian, who like Mary yields to God's grace, they can continue despite the advance of natural age, to have the hopefulness of the young. Why? Because in light of eternity, their future is much longer than their past. No matter how old they are, their future with eternal life on the horizon is so much longer than their past. All of this is to say, sisters, that Mary is the model and the example of the disposition of heart of the Christian. To be like a child does not mean being naive, but it does mean believing God can do what he says, even if at first glance it seems impossible. Like when he says to Mary, although you are a virgin, I want you to conceive and bear a son. Or like when he says to us, you can be holy, or I want you to be a saint. Um, I don't know, are, are you familiar, again, I'm probably dating myself with this, but are you familiar with Franco Zeffirelli's uh, movie, Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, good. Okay, yeah. Um, it was a television miniseries which aired um, in the late 1970s. Uh, the actors for that time were star-studded cast. Um, they included people like Anne Bancroft, Peter Ustinoff, Sir Lawrence Olivier, Anthony Quinn, James Earl Jones, Olivia Hussey. Um, Ten years after it was produced, TV Guide called it the best miniseries of all time. Um, I'm not here so much to promote it, um, but there's one scene in particular that I wanted to uh, discuss briefly this morning. It's when Mary, after the visitation from Gabriel, tells Joseph that she's pregnant and she's conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they have this exchange. As she tells him this, Joseph replies with, this is more than any man can be expected to believe. And Mary replies, but you aren't any man. You too have been chosen. Now, I don't know if that exchange actually took place in history, but it expresses a theological truth. 
Joseph, too, was chosen by God. They both believed what he told them. And so I bring it up, sisters, because um, this issue of greatness and holiness, it isn't a question of everybody else believing that it's, that it's possible. It's an issue of you and me, like Mary and Joseph, believing that God has called us and chosen us to be holy. Those are the only people that really matter in terms of believing what God's saying. Okay, that's a little bit about the beginning of the answer. Let's talk uh, just briefly about the end. At the end of Mary's conversation with Gabriel, she says, may it be done to me according to your word. Um, it is for sure a fair translation of the Greek, which is uh, what St. Luke originally wrote the gospel in. However, I, I think the challenge we might face with the translation is that we conclude that Mary is merely resigned to the situation. Let it be done to me according to your word. Or in other words, that she's simply passive before it. Well, okay, God, if you want that, I accept it. Um, but the sense of the words that St. Luke used in the original Greek, they're more active than merely being resigned. Um, it, she's not only expressing a faithful belief, I believe you can do it, nor even that, okay, I accept the role you want me to take. There's a tone of desire about it. In other words, in the original Greek, there's a, a, there's a joy and an eagerness about it. She is enthusiastic about having this part in what God wants to do. She wants to cooperate with what God has in mind. Um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux has a, uh, an interesting meditation on the Annunciation. And it's as if he's speaking to Mary after she's heard Gabriel's um, proclamation to her and before she makes her response. And Bernard says this, if you, my lady, meaning Mary, if you let him, Gabriel, hear your voice. In other words, if you reply yes to this, then he will let you see our salvation. In other words, our salvation, the salvation of the human race is, is waiting for you to say yes for your part. So if you let him hear your voice, then he will let you see our salvation. And then Bernard adds this. Isn't this what you have been wanting? What you have been weeping for and sighing after day and night in your prayers? In other words, Mary, um, this doesn't, uh, she, it's not just that she doesn't sin. It's that she's seen sin have its effects around her. And as Bernard presented, she's been praying, longing, even weeping over what she sees, longing for God to change this. So God has been preparing her heart before Gabriel gets there to, to put in her heart a desire to see God bring salvation and to change this world. And then Gabriel comes and says, God's going to do it. Will you have a part in it? And she's like, yes, as Bernard says. This is what I've been longing for. So the point is she's eager and willing to help. Um, you know, there is a difference between being passive, accepting, and being receptive. Uh, for me, I don't know if this will help you. It helps me. I like to think about baseball in the sense, this sense. To the uninitiated observer, somebody who just happens to come upon a game, it can seem like the catcher 
is a very passive member of the team. I mean, all he does is sit back there on his haunches and catch the ball. Whereas everybody else, the pitcher is out there throwing 90 or 100 pitches a game, exerting all this energy and effort, sweat pouring down. The other players are out there running, catching balls, throwing, and meanwhile the catcher is just sitting back there. Um, the reality is he has a very vital role. He has to be attentive and aware of where to be when that pitch, which is coming from 60 feet away at 90 to 100 miles an hour, He's got to be ready. And, and I think in a certain way, sisters, it's, it's an image for us. God is the initiative taker, but he doesn't want us to be passive. He wants us to be receptive, like Mary, eager, waiting, ready to move with what he, what he wants when he makes it known. So receptive to what God is doing, yes. Passive, no. Mary's not passive with her response. She's eager and ready. She engages herself enthusiastically and joyfully with what God wants. Um, um, <clears throat> it's interesting, we're, as I said, preparing to pray the rosary in a couple minutes. Um, John Paul II uh, issued a document in 2003 to promote praying of the rosary. And I want to just read to you a brief uh, part of it. Um, in this part that I'm about to read, just to set the context, He's encouraging people to promote the rosary among the young. Um, and in, in the document, he acknowledges that some people object that the rosary doesn't really work for the young. So he, he kind of acknowledges that objection. And he, um, he says, okay, you know, perhaps the rosary seems not to be suited to the taste of children and young people of today. And I guess probably what he means is the repetition of it and, um, and the lack of any visual imagery. I mean, I don't know if young people today, but with our technological age, they're used to a lot of sensory input and a lot of movement. And so I think that's where he's coming from. Oh, okay, I understand that people are saying this. But then he goes on. He says, um, um, but maybe the objection is due to an impoverished method of praying it rather than to the prayer form itself. In other words, he's saying, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, he says, maybe while maintaining the basic structure of the rosary, it could be prayed with symbolic and other practices that would help children to understand and appreciate it. And then he says, why not try it? And he concludes by saying he's sure that if the rosary is well presented to young people, that they will, as he says, once more surprise adults by the way they make this prayer their own and recite it with the enthusiasm typical of their age group. Okay, there's a lot in there that we could talk about um, in terms of the rosary itself and fostering it among young people. For our purposes, however, I wanted to focus just on one line, and that's where the Pope says, why not try it? Um, maybe it's just me, but I'm struck by the Pope in an official papal pronouncement speaking like this. I mean, normally, if I think about a papal pronouncement, I think of something that's uh, definitively proclaimed, a sentence that's tightly constructed, theologically nuanced, um, expressed in just the right words. And here the Holy Father says simply, well, why not try it? I mean, he seems to be quite free in saying something like, hey, give it a shot and see what happens. Um, I think that in that line, 
we have a certain insight about how God wants us to think about the pursuit of our greatness and holiness. In other words, we should approach pursuing holiness with a certain freedom of spirit. That is, not to be afraid to try some things, even if they don't always work out perfectly. Um, I'm not saying be irresponsible, but I am saying we do have a father who loves us, and therefore we ought to foster the kind of attitude that everything doesn't have to be carefully calculated and constructed, because just the attempt to pursue holiness is in and of itself pleasing to God. Uh, it, so it doesn't necessarily have to be, the students would say something like, God's got our back. You know, there's more there than just our efforts. And to foster that kind of attitude, as the Pope says, why not try it? Um, I should end so that we don't just talk about the rosary, but actually pray it. Um, but let me just say two brief final things. First, we were, we were made for greatness by God. And let's not settle for anything less. And the second is that Mary is not only the model of this greatness for us, but she's also a powerful intercessor for us. And so we ought to, like praying the rosary, ask her to pray for us.